This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 9th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we start with science writer Gabriel Popkin. He's going to talk with me about a battle over bandwidth. This is between 5G, the new generation of cell phone technology, and weather forecasters that are concerned that this signal might interfere with our ability to predict the weather. And I talk with Pong Fei Yu about what an immense smoke plume from 2017 wildfires in Western Canada can tell us about the aftermath of a nuclear bomb. Now we have Gabriel Popkin. He's a freelance science writer based here in Maryland. This week, he wrote about a battle over bandwidth between telecommunication and weather forecasting agencies. Hi, Gabe. Hi. The area of the spectrum at issue here is uh, what the telecoms call 5G. Is accessing this new ban about making faster phones? Well, that's one of the potential applications. And I should clarify, 5G actually already exists. Yeah. The major telecom companies are starting to roll it out. There are a bunch of different frequencies that they're using and other frequencies that they want to use in the future. And this battle is over this one little piece of the frequency spectrum that happens to be near a frequency that's very important for weather forecasters. Okay. So what exactly makes something 5G? The 5G just refers to the next generation of wireless communication. So you may notice on your phone, it says 4G, and that means the fourth generation. 5G will be much faster. It will have what's called low latency, which I understand to mean that only very short delays between transmission and receipt. Mm -hmm. It's not just um, that it will make your cell phone faster. I, I think the reason that 5G is considered so important, the reason we have Donald Trump talking about 5G as well as many other countries is that it's seen as sort of an enabling technology for things like widespread deployment of self-driving cars. These cars will all need to be in communication with each other, presumably in a communication with sort of smart roads, smart infrastructure. In other words, there's just going to be incredible amounts of data whizzing back and forth all around us between objects that we don't even think of as being wireless enabled, potentially our, our, our refrigerators. I've even heard of this idea of doctors using 5G networks to do remote surgery. So mm. we really should be thinking of it as more than just, you know, faster cell phones. What's making NOAA and to some extent NASA worried about 5G? 
Right. So uh, I should clarify, NOAA does the weather forecast. NASA is involved because they build the satellites or at least some of the instruments that go on the satellites. They have a lot of the technical expertise, but then they hand them off to NOAA. So NOAA is really the uh, critical agency here. These satellites, one of the things that they measure is the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere. And like any molecule, water has certain frequencies where it can absorb light and emit light. And those are the critical frequencies you need to look at if you want to measure it. And one of those frequencies is 23.8 gigahertz. We don't need to worry too much about exactly what that number means. Basically, it means that the light wave has 23.8 billion cycles in one second, which is a lot. Anyway, NOAA has and other weather forecast agencies have very expensive, sophisticated satellites that measure very sensitively at that frequency. And then they take that data, put it into their weather models. And that's how we get our seven-day forecast, our hurricane forecasts, a lot of other things. It's not like water is like blasting out a, a whole ton of this radiation. It's uh, a very faint signal. And so NOAA needs you know, a really quiet environment in order to measure it. The concern is that 5G, as the Federal Communications Commission is currently planning to roll it out, they want to use a frequency band that's not exactly right next door to that water vapor band, but pretty close. Water vapor is around 23 and this is around 25? Uh, not quite. Water vapor is at 23.8 and the FCC has auctioned off 24.25 to 24.45. There's 250 megahertz of space in between them, of quiet space. Mm-hmm. FCC says that should be plenty and Noah says that is not enough that <laughs> if you you know turn up these 5G signals as much as FCC and the telecom companies want to, you could potentially have radiation leaking over into the band that uh, Noah needs. And when you say turn it up, you mean that the, the signal, the 5G signal that FCC is regulating, that is something that you can it have almost like a volume on it, right? Like a decibel level. Exactly. So NOAA wants the decibel level to be low, but of course the telecoms don't like that because then they couldn't send as much data around and then this part of the spectrum would just be less useful for them. Yeah, I mean, I've heard about the early 5G rollout, the stuff that's already being deployed in cities, that it's very it's very susceptible to walls. Right, especially at the, this high frequencies we're talking about. It's Apparently it, it can't go through anything not walls, it won't go through our bodies. So for this to work, for this 24 gigahertz band 5G to work, we're talking about like a transmitter at, on every light pole. If you have to have it very close, so it's not passing through a lot of stuff, and then you also turn up the decibel watts, what does that do? It's more data. You can send more, more data. Is there any study or any evidence that either agency or scientists have been able to show that what the FCC wants to do is going to interfere with NOAA's measurements? Or is there any evidence that is showing that it won't be a problem? Right. Well, that's sort of the crux of the issue. Um, There's a European study that's public done by some meteorologists in France, and they basically conclude that at the decibel level that the FCC wants, there could be substantial interference with weather observations. And NASA have apparently, according to many of the sources I spoke with, done several studies of this issue and come to basically the same conclusion as the Europeans. However, those studies are not public. 
they have been shared with a limited group of people. And so everything that I was able to find out about them came from talking with those people as opposed to being able to review the studies myself. Right. Of course, I asked Noah and NASA for them, and they basically said no comment, not even really acknowledging the existence of these studies. And FEC's position is that we haven't seen a valid study that contradicts our position. However, the FCC itself has not produced a study. They say it's not our job to produce studies. We take into account other people's studies. And the wireless industry, as far as I know, and other people have said this as well, has also not produced a study. So basically, there's no study that I'm aware of backing up the FCC's position. And the studies that everybody would like to see backing up NOAA's position are under wraps. Right. What about the European study that you mentioned? Is there Are there questions out there about that? It's um, based on information from the wireless industry about this is what 5G might look like. It's not based on actual equipment because that equipment still hasn't been deployed. So there's certainly questions one could ask about it. I think my take on this is that the FCC is not going to put a lot of weight on a European study. If this NOAA study ever came out, it would certainly make a bigger difference on American policy. And we're, we're in a key point in time right now because we have, there are several meetings on the horizon between different governments and eventually, you know, a worldwide meeting to discuss what's going on with this, with 5G. So what's up next? What's happening? You know, I think it's this month. Next week, in fact, a U.S. delegation will go to Ottawa and meet with the other countries of the Western Hemisphere of the Americas to try to develop a uh, unified position around what this decibel level should be. It's not clear at this point what position the U.S. is bringing to that meeting. And it's certainly not clear what is going to come out of that meeting. I know some of the other countries, such as Brazil, are going to be advancing a more stringent noise Mm -hmm. limit. And then the next step, the really big step, is this meeting this fall in Egypt, where all the countries from around the world come and basically need to come to an agreement about what these noise limits should be. Do we know any of the proposed limits that other countries might bring? Yeah, so Europe is bringing negative 42 decibel watts, whereas the FCC position is negative 20. Those don't sound so different, but because we're talking about decibels, they're more different by more than a factor of 100. Wow. Now, it's not at all clear that the FCC's position is going to end up being the U.S. position. Some people seem to think that's what's going to happen, but I certainly wasn't able to confirm that. As of now, I think the European position is pretty clear. They want a more stringent limit. They have, as is well known, they have the world's best weather forecasts, which the U.S. is supposed to be trying to compete with them on. Um, So it makes sense that the Europeans (laughs) would be very invested in maintaining their world-leading weather forecasts. What are some ideas about how if this were rolled out at a, a level that, that really did interfere, what would happen to weather prediction? Yeah. So obviously, you know, we all value our w- weather forecasts. I, you know, it's Monday. It's really helpful for me to be able to see what the weather's likely to be this coming weekend so I can make plans. But there's also, you know, much more serious implications. If a hurricane's bearing down, we need to know where it's going to make landfall, how strong it's going to be, wind speeds, rainfall, those kind of things. And, uh, this water vapor information is crucial. It's one of the crucial data sets that go into those kind of forecasts. The acting administrator of NOAA, Neil Jacobs, went on the Hill a couple months ago and, and said that basically his team's calculation is that if they lost the weather vapor data 
the extent that they think they would if 5G were rolled out in this 24 gigahertz band at the noise level the FCC wants that this would set weather forecasting back to 1980 wow. lead to you know really totally wrong forecasts of hurricanes such as what the U.S. produced during Hurricane Sandy, which was sending the hurricane out to sea when we all know that's not what happened. Now, of course, the FCC came back and said that's inaccurate. Your study has all the assumptions. So I would say until we can see these NOAA NASA studies, it's hard to really figure out what's going on. Like mm -hmm. the jury's still out a bit on whether that sort of dire level of impact on weather forecasts is really a threat. But certainly the meteorological community is making a lot of noise about this. They are pretty convinced that it's a threat. If the U.S. went it alone and, you know, we had this intense infrastructure of 5G networks, it would definitely have an effect on weather forecasting in other parts of the globe. Yeah, that's correct. The atmospheric conditions here over the U.S. Um, become the weather in Europe two to four days later. From what I've heard, it seems that there's a, a lot of interest in sort of harmonizing these noise limits around the globe because telecom companies are international. They want people to right. bring their, be able to bring cell phones from one country to another and everything works. There's no treaty that requires the U.S. to fall in line, but there is a you know, substantial reason for the U.S. to want to do whatever the rest of the world does. Thank you so much, Gabe. Sure, it was my pleasure. Gabriel Popkin is a freelance science writer based in Maryland. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Pongfei Yu about what wildfires in Western Canada can tell us about nuclear winter. This week's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project, which will help develop their creativity and confidence. The projects are designed to spark tinkering and learning in kids of all ages. All projects, inspirations, and activities are created by a team of product designers in-house in Mountain View, California, and rigorously tested by kids. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project, detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about that crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers and is on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com magazine. That's kiwico.com magazine. A few years ago, Western Canada had an incredibly destructive fire season. More than 12,000 square kilometers of British Columbia had burned by the end of the season, and the smoke from the burn reached into the stratosphere. Pengfei Yu and colleagues analyzed the movement of this smoke to better understand what goes on in the upper atmosphere when smoke gets there, and then use that to ground truth predictions about what would happen after a nuclear bomb blast. Hi, Pengfei. Hi, Sarah. 
when it goes into the stratosphere, let's just be clear here. So the troposphere is kind of where the weather hangs out. That's where clouds and rainstorms, all that stuff happens. Once you get into the stratosphere, it's a totally different environment. And, you know, occasionally a storm cloud might poke into there. Is there a way of estimating the actual mass that was injected into the troposphere in the lower stratosphere from this uh, 2017 case? Uh, for the 2017 case, our estimation is the total mass injected is 0.3 telegram or equivalently 0.3 million tons of smoke. Wow, including okay, that's black a lot. carbon and organic carbon. Yeah, that's a lot. That's 300,000 tons. I think this is record-breaking smoke plumes in these few decades. Wow. So it is a huge amount of uh, particulates going into there. How long did this cloud of smoke last? Well, satellites have seen the smoke plumes for eight months in the stratosphere. That's a really long time. That is a long time. How long does smoke normally hang around after a fire? Say it stays down here in the troposphere and it doesn't go way up high into the stratosphere. Well, normal wildfire smoke in the troposphere, in the lower atmosphere, the lifetime could be weeks. So in this case, we have eight months. So that's pretty long. But it's not normal for smoke to go up that high? It's really not that normal. It happens like a few times a year. Right. As you mentioned, you, you, you're absolutely right. In the stratosphere, we don't have a precipitation. So there's no precipitation to wash them out. So that's why the oh. aerosols and the particles, smoke plumes can stay there for a longer time. And also in the troposphere, things are mixed up very quickly. In the stratosphere, things are not going to be mixed up very quickly. So that's another reason why the smoke plumes last longer. One important point here is the components of the smoke plume. You divide it into these two broad classes of organic carbon and black carbon, also known as soot. How do those substances behave differently? Black carbon is quite different from organic carbon in terms of many, many factors. Black carbon is forms due to incomplete combustion. Those particles are small and black, so the black carbon can absorb solar radiation efficiently. Mm -hmm. So the energy will be released to the surrounding air. So black carbon actually heat the air. The air will rise. When the air rises, smoke plumes rise too. In contrast, organic carbon is mostly white, so it doesn't absorb solar radiation efficiently. So that's a major difference between organic carbon and the black carbon. And when this black soot, this black carbon absorbs light and it heats up the air around it. And so that is actually the mechanism for this cloud getting or this plume getting so high up into the air is this like interaction with the light. Yeah, this is a, a major reason why the plume is rising. We also need some proper meteorological conditions to help the plume to rise. But the black carbon's heating is definitely very important and demonstrated in our paper that makes the plume rise very efficiently from 12 kilometers to all the way to 23 kilometers. Wow. What kind of instruments did you use to keep an eye on the smoke plume? Well, we mostly use satellites, including SH-3 on the International Space Station. We also use some other satellites like Clipso. Besides satellites, we also use Bloombong optical particle counter launched over Wyoming to measure aerosols vertical profiles. You make this point in your paper that modeling this smoke plume 
from this very, very large fire, from this very large wildfire can help better understand what happens with a nuclear blast. Can you talk about what you see as similarities between those two things? First of all, I think the wildfire smoke is a natural experimental, natural analog of the fire smoke from nuclear bomb explosion. The chemical composition is very similar. It composed with soot or black carbon and also organic carbon. In our paper, we demonstrate that the black carbon or the soot can help the smoke rise from 12 to 23 kilometers. And that is predicted by previous nuclear winter studies. Like when the nuclear bomb explodes, the city gets burned, you inject lots of soot-containing plumes, those plumes will get very high into the stratosphere. So this process is actually observed clearly by satellites for the 2017 event. We can see that this natural experiment confirmed previous nuclear winter studies. Another important thing is, although the chemical composition is similar between pyro-CB smoke or wildfire smoke and the nuclear winter smoke, wildfire smoke, in terms of mass injected, is way less than the smoke due to nuclear bomb. But even for this small amount of soot, we still see the plume can rise. And not only does it rise, but it sticks around for eight months? Yeah, exactly. So when the smoke is rising to the stratosphere, there's no precipitation. So the smoke will stay in the stratosphere a longer time for a few months. Also, will be transported to the entire northern hemisphere. So it will make a global climate impact which also confirms previous nuclear winter study that even regional nuclear war between like two countries, A and B, can also have some global impact. Right. Are there any other lessons you can draw from the analysis of the smoke plume? Previous nuclear winter studies or research assume the particles are mostly soot or black carbon. They ignore the organics because previous lab studies just Organic carbon can react with the OH or the ozone in the stratosphere very rapidly. However, this natural experiment we have for the 2017 fire case, we know that the organics will stay in the stratosphere for many months, which means the reaction with OH or ozone is not as rapid as what we saw before. So that will call the previous assumption from nuclear winter studies into question that mm-hmm. maybe we do need to consider the organic aerosols. And we found organic aerosols actually 98% of the total mass, which is a really, really dominant mass of smoke. And also black carbon or the soot mass contribution is, is only about 2%. However, it, even a small amount of a mass is very important because it promotes the plume rising, right? self-lofting, and also extending the smoke's lifetime. So the 2% of the mass make a difference. Hmm. So we talked about the size of this plume. How would that compare to what happened with a a nuclear weapon? Well, for a typical nuclear war, like Indian, Pakistan size nuclear war, the estimate soot injection is about 15 to 50 telegram of soot. And for for US-Russia nuclear war, it can be 150 telegrams soot. And for this 2017 case, we only have 0.006 telegrams soot, so which is 1,000 or 10,000 smaller than nuclear winter cases. Thanks, Pengfei. Thank you, Sarah. 
Hong Fei Yu is a researcher at Xinyan University in China. You can find a link to his science paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places, or you can listen on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.